Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. It is my pleasure to welcome today's guest, Major General Duncan Capps. General Capps has been the Commandant of the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst and Director of Leadership for the British Army since April 2012. Commissioning into the Royal Corps Transport in 1985, his early service saw him deployed in operations to Cyprus, Northern Ireland, Bosnia and Afghanistan. On promotion to Lieutenant Colonel, he took command of 7 Transport Regiment, deploying to Cyprus as commanding officer of the UN Peacekeeping Force. As Brigadier, he commanded 104 Logistics Brigade, deployed to Afghanistan in 2012 as Commander Joint Force Support, for which he was awarded an operational CBE. On return from Afghanistan, he was made Assistant Chief of Staff at the Permanent Joint Headquarters before promoting to Major General and taking command of the Army's Regional Command. Alongside his long list of appointments, General Capps is Colonel Commandant of the Royal Logistics Corps, a Forces Muslim Champion, and is an accomplished ultramarathon kayak racer, having been a member of the British Kayak Marathon team for over a decade. General, a very warm welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on, not least because you are a boss, but also as uh, your role as Commandant Royal Military Academy Sandhurst and Director Leadership for the Army. As is becoming customary now in our podcast series, we like to start by getting to know a little bit about our, our guests to set the context of their leadership, their views and their experience. So I wanted to that end, if you could just tell us a little bit about your formative years, your background, your schooling, your key influences that shaped you as a leader today. Yeah, no, th- thanks, Lanny. And it's a, it's a real, real pleasure to um, have a chance to do this. But I am quite conscious of the, the quality of some of your previous um, contributors. So there's a little bit of pressure on here. So, so I, I grew up in a, in a, a very loving um, you know, family. Um, my father was a, a painter decorator, self-employed, did home maintenance. My mother was a, a nursing auxiliary. So, so I didn't come from a, I didn't come from a particularly rich or, or privileged background. I, I hadn't, uh, we, we, you know, until I joined the army, I hadn't done a lot of things that people would now take for granted. I hadn't stayed in the hotel. I hadn't been overseas. Um, you know, hadn't travelled on a plane. So, so I suppose it was. Uh, it was a little bit limited in that respect, um, partly because we just didn't have a huge amount of money. Um, but, but, but interestingly, and then I listened to, to General Sharon's one, I, I spent a lot of time doing similar things to she did as a kid. I did a lot of walking, spent a lot of time in, in, in the Lake District, and we had lovely holidays, youth hostelling, caravanning and doing that kind of stuff, which I guess fostered a, a real love of the outdoors. I, I didn't really understand or know what I wanted to do, and, and I, went to, I went to a comprehensive school, and there wasn't a big history of, of the military in that school, so it wasn't something I was particularly exposed to. My, my father did national service in, in the 1950s, and he'd always said to me that the army was, was a great career. And I remember him taking me to what used to be the old army show, which was held at, at Aldershot uh, in, uh, in Longmore, and I'd always, I'd always enjoyed that. But it wasn't really until 1982 when, when the Falklands War uh, kicked off uh, and I was at school that, that that then struck me as something I would want to do. Uh, and after that, I was, I was pretty inspired by wanting to do that, and at the time, um, it, it felt like the right thing for me. I didn't want to do any more education, so I, so I made a conscious decision not to join the uh, not join the others that from my school that were going off to university, but but actually to join the army as I did at eighteen, as as it was then as private soldier in the in the Royal Corps of Transport to go and do a, a potential officer development course because I was not very worldly wise and and, and relatively immature, and then from that um, to, to go to the Army Officer Selection Board. 
and get a risk pass into that to do to another officer development course at Sandhurst, a thing called Royal and Company, which some of your listeners may know about, but but it was um, quite a tough officer development piece before I finally managed to get onto the main commissioning course and, and, and then work my way uh, through uh, to be commissioned into what was then the Royal uh, Corps of Transport, but now has become the Royal Logistic Corps. So fast forward then 35 years, and as I said in the beginning, you are now Commandant of the Royal Military Academy Sanders, where you started your started your career uh, back in 1985, and also as Director Leadership for the Army. Both roles clearly highlighting the importance of, uh, of leadership to, to our organisation, and leadership as a, as a capability. So we're keen to understand why this is. Um, and to do so, I think we need to step back and look at our profession, the profession of arms. So what is it and how does it differ to other professions? And within the profession of arms, what is unique about the land environment? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, um, I mean, there is debate, isn't there, as to whether whether what we do is a profession. Um, I, I think it is. What, what makes it unique? I suppose, firstly, it, it's the fact that we are authorised in extremists to use lethal force that we expect our people to make an unlimited um, liability commitment, one at which they might uh, literally put their lives on the line to, to achieve uh, that, uh, that objective. Uh, and that I suppose there are very few professions where one subordinates all of one's individual considerations potentially to that of the collective and the achievement of that aim. And, and, unlike, you know, and like other organisations, ours is about ser service. But, but there aren't many where it's about totally selfless commitment, I, I, I suppose. The second part of your question, what, what makes the land environment different to perhaps the air, maritime, but be that above the water or, or below it, or, or cyber or even space now, I suppose, is, is that for us in the land environment or the battle space, it, it's always about people. It, it, it's, it's always a clash of wills uh, rather than a clash of equipment. And it may, of course, be at range, but, but more often than not, the close battle it is conducted amongst the people, um, and I suppose it is where conflicts are won, it's where decisions are made, it's where humanitarian uh, relief is provided. Um, and, and it's been fashionable over the years to sort of move away that from the consideration of boots on the ground. But it is the one thing that you get with people and soldiers that you get that persistence and the consistence and that reassurance of having soldiers on the battle space in amongst where the conflict is taking place. So I guess you started to answer my next question and bear in mind you say that the, the army is very much about people and in the people business. So why is leadership so important to us as an institution? Well I mean I suppose you've got to look at what, what the essence of British army leadership is uh, and I guess it, it is the essence of British army servant leadership is that it is by example and that it's values based. It, it's important because we ask our people to make that that ultimate potentially um, commitment and and the subjugation of their own personal um, you know considerations to that of the collective. So, so that means that that people need to trust us and that's both the individuals who we lead but also the society whom we serve. And, and we put our people in those positions of responsibility. And it's therefore important that, that, they, that they are followed by people who do as they do, not just as they say. And, that, and that's a really important distinction. Uh, and our values and standards, I suppose, are at the, the, at the very heart of that. And, and they should guide our ethical behavior and the delivery of that, on, of that leadership. And I suppose that the heart of that is the principle um, that you as a leader within the army or the armed forces are there to serve those who you have the privilege to lead and, and not the other way around. 
So if I can turn now to your, to your current role, both as Commandant at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst, and Director of Leadership, and I wanted you to talk a little bit more about both those roles, please. Yeah, I mean, I suppose um, as Commandant Sanders, I've got, I've got the privilege, uh, albeit temporary, to, to be custodian of this amazing institution um, that's been educating and training British Army officers for over 200 years, and those of our friends and allies since 1947. I suppose it's hard for me, it's, it's maintenance of standards, it's ensuring we remain contemporary and relevant. It's ensuring that we sort of fuse and harmonize all the good stuff that has come before, but also the many different agencies that form part of this, this big system of systems. And that we, I suppose, most importantly, look after our cadets and our staff that train and educate them. I would say the big expansion area that, that, um, that I've been tasked by the Chief of the General Staff with is, is really to develop the relationships with our friends and our allies who train alongside here. Uh, us here, the international cadets. Uh, and that's very much about two things. It's about the post-Brexit global Britain and how we should be forward deployed as an army. And we need those relationships to be able to do that with our friends and allies who so are in the right place to deliver uh, and, and um, support governmental and foreign office uh, policy. And I suppose secondly, it's about the way that the army contributes to UK prosperity, cues business and industry uh, and, and supports the prosperity of this country going forward. And so you've been in the chair now for the best part of nine months. What are your initial impressions on how we're doing business in regards to leadership? What can we be proud of and, and where is there still work to do? Uh, I mean, I think uh, across the army, um, I mean, as I came in, I was fortunate we'd commissioned uh, through your organization, Langley, some work uh, to really canvas uh, across the organization how we were doing as leaders, which involved, you know, interviewing and surveying over 3,000, just under 3,000 people, really, from the top of the organization down to, to our, our private um, service people. Uh, and I don't think we've ever been more conscious of the importance of how we lead and the effect that our behaviors as leaders have on our people and their loved ones. I think that's, I think that's the most important thing that came out of that. And I don't think there's ever been a time when there was quite as clear and firm intent, which is led from the chief of the general staff as the head of the army downwards to, to seek to continually assess and really improve the quality and the effectiveness of, of our leadership. And I think one of the really key areas that, that came out of that is, is where we need to do better in how we develop the leader, not just focusing on leadership development as, as a standalone subject. And I think this is about focusing on individuals and helping improve their abilities and the effectiveness of them as leaders. And principally within that is how we, um, how we develop our non-commissioned soldiers, how we prepare them for those first challenges when they get their first tapes, lance corporals and, and equivalents, and how we then develop them through uh, their non-commissioned career, where I don't think we've made sufficient uh, investment. In terms of what I think we can be proud of, I think we should be incredibly proud of the way our people step up to the plate whenever we put them under any kind of pressure or in the situation to do it. And I think the support that the Army, along with the other services, have given uh, in, in support of COVID is just but one example of that. You talk about the role, uh, your role as the Commandant of the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst, is to sell the brand and reputation of the British Army and uh, British Army leadership as part of post-Brexit Global Britain. What's your perception of the outsider's view of British Army leadership? Yeah, it's interesting. My, my sense would be that of those who know us and have worked with us, or those who have employed people who have served with us in the past and are now on their second or third careers, it is overwhelmingly positive. There is, I think, still, and, and, that, and that brand is, you know, is synonymous with Sandhurst and leadership and all of those things that we do right. 
for those that potentially haven't worked with us, there can still be a perception that, that um, because we have authority over people, that we spend all our time shouting and screaming, don't involve people in the decision-making process, uh, and that we have, along with other hierarchical organizations, the worst parts of hierarchies without the best pieces. Uh, and I do think, you know, as, as the army is increasingly smaller as a percentage of society, we have to do our best to make sure that we get out and we socialize and we get involved and that we benchmark what we do to, to make sure that we don't believe we're unpressed. And what, what you and the team in the Center for Army Leadership are heavily involved with, I know, is that process of making sure that we continually apply that rigor to ourselves to make sure that those potential stereotypes of, of army leadership rather than just British army leadership um, are, are dispelled. I think you're right, sir. I think it's very easy to sit in your own echo chamber and believe what you want to believe. And whilst I'm adamant that we, we do leadership well, forged of over 300 years of practical experience, we are not infallible. We do make mistakes and it's, and it's critical that we continue to calibrate our thinking in line with the society we serve. And we need to we need to be careful, sorry, Lang, if I could. We also need to be careful. You know, one of the reasons why British Army leadership has always been held up as a benchmark of how to do things is because the practical experience people get on operational deployments and the other things, because we don't do this in just an esoteric theoretical environment. We give people responsibility. And certainly over the last year, 20 years of the campaigns that we've, my generation, yours have been involved in, people have had, had a chance from, from the lowest level through to the most senior level to really cut their teeth and, and learn. Now, we just need to be careful because if you work in industry or you work in business or if you're in the National Health Service, any of these organizations, you are operational all the time. And whilst we are still very involved across the world, we don't necessarily have those big operations. So we just need to be very careful that we don't believe our own press and the historical experiences we've had in leadership and make sure that we can temporize those with experiences other have, others have, particularly as we start to develop uh, more broadly based teams and we go into areas that perhaps we're not so familiar in the different types of conflicts that we're going to be involved in in the future, that we can lead all of those people and particularly the new generation of, of Gen, Gen Zers and the like that are coming in that perhaps have different expectations and different way of thinking that say my generation did. Absolutely. And I think it's also incumbent on us to remind our, our leaders that leadership is every day uh, on operations, on the battlefield, um, at home, in the barracks. Uh, it's, it's a constant. And actually to be successful, to be a successful leader on operations, it, it all starts and is nurtured in, in barracks uh, and, and in peacetime. I'd like to go back to your previous role as Commander Regional Command from 2017 to April of last year when you were responsible for, amongst many other things, providing defence resilience support to other government departments, counterterrorism, severe weather events, national contingency operations. So what part does the military play then in homeland resilience? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think it's interesting um, because up until about 2012, the use of the military to support government departments or, or, or civil authorities in national resilience at home, I think had been viewed politically perhaps and by others as a tool of last resort. T two things happened that year, 2012, that I think changed these. The first thing was um, the preparation that was done by the armed forces to potentially underpin fuel delivery if there had been a, a national strike by the fuel delivery drivers. 
and the politics of that can, can be put to one side. But, but what essentially armed forces did was train and prepare a distribution network that would look to get after the 120 million cubic metres of fuel that the nation needed in 2012 to survive. Um, and they did that really well. Uh, and there wasn't a strike. And that was that was quite successful and was seen as such. And immediately some of those people bounced into supporting the Olympics. Uh, in the summer of 2012, which you may recall, some of the service provision done by contractors didn't work, and, and a number, large number of, of military folk were pulled in at last minute to provide underpinning support, security, and services to the Olympics. And far from being the sort of disaster everyone thought it would be, you had hugely well-trained service people delivering really great support and security with a smile on their faces. And, and it was part of that massive national success the Olympics was. And I think after that, we have gone to being a tool in the arsenal of, of our political masters that is seen as being a very positive thing that can complement in terms of support and um, underpinning uh, structures to civilian um, resilience. And I guess um, you talked about some of the things, counterterrorism, security, extreme weather, most recently the help to COVID. I mean, I would offer that sort of, you know, the military, have, we're an insurance policy, aren't we? We've got the sort of command and control. We've got the planning and delivery capabilities and the skills. You know, we're held at readiness. And I would say we've got the flexibility and the logistics from my background for a whole host of, of, of areas. But, but critically, that's always in support of, of other government departments and agencies. And you remained in command at the outbreak of the COVID pandemic and therefore saw the military support effect firsthand. What value did we add? And what have we learned so far that we should take forward to improve our contribution to the national effort, whether it be COVID or any other uh, national resilience operation? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to go back. And I think the first thing that we added in terms of value, uh, and, and there are 10 regional headquarters across the UK that essentially act as military focal points if there is a need for us to support you know, the civilian authorities. And each of those trains and prepares with something that's called the local resilience fora. So that is a, a virtual and physical body that brings together all of those agencies that do national resilience. So local governance, everything from police, fire, emergency services, environment agency, Met Office, highways agency, everybody that has a role in underpinning, you know, security and resilience. And we ran training uh, exercises for those, which we've got capacity and ability to do that pulled them all in. And that training program, which, which was a formal one every two years and, and an informal one every, every year or so, had helped build those relationships and confidence so that when it came to some of these events, actually you weren't meeting people for the first time. And the strength of that was that it was regionally based. And we'd come out of what was my first year, sort of 2017, 2018, where we'd gone through terrorist attacks, including the Manchester bombing, some really severe weather and, and flooding events, um, fires on Saddleworth Moor, etc. But also the Novichok poisoning in Salisbury, which, which was led uh, down in Salisbury by my the Southwest Regional Headquarters. Uh, and it had really confirmed the way that we did all of that business. And some of the planning we were doing was for national pandemics as well, uh, which, which is interesting. So, so I think we've got to keep that training piece going. I think we've learned that we've got to, got to continue to invest in the training preparedness for those. We can't afford to skimp on that. 
at an organizational individual level uh, and i think we also have to understand and it's come it's come quite starkly i think during covid the difference in the regions and the devolved administrations uh, and and to make sure that we support them in the way that they need to and i suppose that the fundamental one going forward and, it, and it's it's something we understand but it's not well understood by the media is that the military are always in support of the other authorities we are never in the lead for these things uh, and there tends to be a focus every time we get military involved to say the army, the navy, the air force, whoever it might be, are leading these things, which which is not the case. We are always in support, and what we don't want to do, and it's a really important thing, is upset or, or undermine the marvelous efforts that have been done by National Health Service and others, um, with us appearing to be sort of knights and knightesses on on white charges coming in to save the day, which is never what we do. I think your point about supporting others in homeland operations is really important. And so on that, are we doing enough to prepare our people for leading in these diverse environments of multi-agency, multidisciplinary teams? Yeah, I think we can always do more. I think we, we've got to keep the program going. But, but I think just having those relationships and doing the exercises, uh, getting people to know one another, understanding how the other organizations, police fire particularly, that we work with regularly, how they think, um, and understanding the value that the other organizations bring to it. We, you know, in a lot of these cases, we've learned enormous amounts from them, you know, rather than the other way around. You know, we bring great command and control organization, but they are the experts in this space. So I think going forward, and, and these are these are um, also organizations that play well into our reservist community because they are regionally based. They know the ground and they know a lot of the people. And of course, a lot of them, because of their civilian careers, bring some real expertise and skills that we just wouldn't otherwise have. So, so I think continuing to develop that, and I'm sure, hopefully, once we get beyond COVID, we'll continue to train and develop our people in these things, uh, and we'll continue to work in these agencies, and I'm sure there'll, there, will be, there will be a renewed focus on how we prepare ourselves for this, and particularly how the Army and the other services, you know, make sure their people are prepared at an individual and an organizational level to, to, to step up and do our bit when we're asked to. So turning to some of your other personal leadership experiences, as Assistant Chief of Staff at the Permanent Joint Headquarters in, um, in Northwood, you were responsible for a number of demanding logistics operations, including support to counter-extremism in the Middle East, Ebola in West Africa, and the redeployment of UK forces from Afghanistan in 2014. And off the latter, you previously stated, I quote, the elegance with which we leave Afghanistan will be a measure of how good the operation has been. So firstly, was it a good operation? And can you give us a sense of the scale of that operation, how you personally led the challenge? Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're talking about the Afghanistan campaign, it's probably too, it's probably too soon to probably assess, um, you know, how history is going to judge that campaign in Afghanistan. And it's clearly ongoing. And, and, and in this role now, our support to the Afghan National Officer Academy and, and leadership development of the Afghan army principally is going to endure. But, but I know, having been there you know, very early on, as I think you were, Langley, in 2001, 2002, um, it, there's been significant improvements since, since that time. And I've been back there most years since, since 2002. I guess with, with regard to the redeployment from Afghanistan, it was a big operation, and it undoubtedly was a success. The scale in purely logistic terms uh, wasn't huge. It was about 10,000 20-foot shipping containers, about 3,500 vehicles, major equipment, and about 10,000 people. Uh, and somebody did point out to me that you could get all that on a ship. And I did point out to them, if you can show me the port in the middle of Helmand, that would be really helpful. 
Uh, but the, so you get the complexity, the range, the distance, they were difficult and really significant. There was also not compromising our relationship with the Afghans. There was the safety of our own troops as we pulled out and that of our allies. Um, and all of that conspired to make it really quite, quite difficult and probably the biggest logistic operation we'd, we'd done for a generation. And, and just to add, I suppose, people did have this vision that it would look like the, the American withdrawal from Vietnam with you know, people hanging in on the skids of helicopters and burning stuff and throwing it away. And that's sort of what led to my quote that I made at the time that, you know, if we leave in poor order and we uh, don't safeguard the investment that the taxpayers have made in principally in land forces, you know, we won't, we won't come out of this well. That being a significant leadership challenge, I guess, from your perspective, what else ranks amongst your most significant leadership challenges and how did you overcome them? Well, I suppose, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to double down on that a little bit. I, I went out there as commander of Joint Force Support, which is essentially the logistic organisation, which, which is about 6,000 people in Afghanistan, multi-disciplinary, um, mixed force, military and civilians and contractors. Uh, and I got, I got there in late 2012. Uh, and to be to be greeted in week one with the uh, the NATO commander, the American four star there, giving direction that we should plan to be out by the end of 2014, not the end of 2015. And at that time, it, it was quite difficult to to persuade anyone in the UK that that this really was a big thing uh, and that it applied to us because we were operating under the NATO campaign, and that if you are going to a a, a withdrawal of forces that is going to become broadly about physics and timing, i.e. you've just lost a year, and, and less about the conditions that you really needed to move quite quickly to get yourself in a good place. And I suppose one of the biggest challenges I found was when the then Chief of the General Staff, Peter Wall, came out, and I, and I briefed him on this, and that he thumped the desk and said that he fundamentally disagreed with my analysis of the problem. That was reasonably high up there. I mean, to be fair to him, he, he, he very much, after we chatted to him, came round to that. And I did point out to him, and he quoted me later, that we do need to do something, General, because most of your future equipment capabilities is currently right behind enemy lines in, in, uh, in Helmand. So we do need to get it back in, in good order. I was massively, I was massively well supported because that, that's really uncomfortable for any logistician to tell the operational commander that you potentially have to compromise the plan to make sure that you can achieve something that, that, that will be logistically competent. But, but, you know, I was really lucky in having your commander, Task Force Hellman, full brigade commander, Bob Bruce, who was the brigadier out there, was hugely supportive and everyone got behind it. And, and I think it was a very, very successful um, thing, but it wasn't without its challenges at the beginning, that's for sure. And had you worked with that team, um, uh, Brigadier Bob, was it Brigadier Bob, do you say? Yeah. yeah. Had you worked with that team and Brigadier Bob uh, previously uh, before you were faced with that challenge? Yeah, so, so, I mean, Bob and I were friends anyway. We'd been staff college together, and he was exceptionally uh, open in getting my headquarters involved in his training and vice versa before we went out. And that, and that program of training exercises and getting to know people was, was really, uh, really powerful. And the fact that we staggered the, the deployment so that he was on the ground, knew the space before we moved in. And I think that was, you know, that was really, really successful. Uh, and that cooperation and that mutual trust piece uh, allowed us to be able to get that job done, which I just don't think it would if we if we hadn't had that that really good understanding of cooperation. I guess that highlights a characteristic of military operations. And reflecting back on your previous comments about working alongside other government departments and agencies, where we used to be put into new teams, often at short notice, 
uh, certainly on operations, may not have had the benefit of pre-deployment training to develop that trust and a mutual understanding that's so critical to deliver operational success. So, so what is it that enables us to have such organisational agility? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good it's a really good question. It sort of harks back to one of the questions you asked earlier about British Army leadership. And, and if you get it right and you have all of the flexibility uh, and you allow maximum amount of debate and conjecture and everyone contributes, particularly the people that are expert, before you make that decision. And when you do make the decision, you, you all get behind it and then you, you, you utilize the strength of the hierarchy to get it done. And I think if you can get that right culturally, and that, that's at the heart of your question, if you can get that training and that education process so, so that everyone knows that their, their opinion is valued, but that once you get on with it, and this is happening on a, you know, this is not one big decision. This is lots and lots of things on a day-to-day -day basis. And that you know that you're empowered and that you trust people and you back them out. That, that really is how you get a team firing. And it meant to your point about leadership, about getting to know your people, focusing on the individuals, building those people together as a team, having opportunities to practice and rehearse and make those mistakes. That allows us to very quickly reorganize and also shift if we need to our focus to make sure that we're always staying on the thing that really needs to be achieved. And, and our ability to generate tempo, I think, because we have shared practices and that we can plan and our processes are good without making it so templated that we stifle creativity, that's where the magic is. That, that's the art in the leadership that's backed up by some of the science. Uh, and if you can get that balance right, then it plays to what you're saying about being able to put people in. And, and in joint force support, there was, a, you know, in my logistic organization, to put it in sensible terms everyone understands, there was a really nice balance of people that were doing continuity tours for a year or so and had that, that organizational and situational awareness with a new headquarters that came in and did seven months or so and made sure you had the energy. Uh, and if you got that fusion right, it was, it was a very, very powerful organization of grown-ups that, that were comfortable in their own skin and, and were very good at making and executing and delivering things. So staying on that theme, your experience has seen leadership across the spectrum of environments. And, and you've mentioned some of these already, both in the Army, regular reserve, the cadet force, uh, civil servants, the joint environment across defense, multinational, across government, um, and, and indeed the, the charitable sector. And you're currently a trustee of the Armed Forces Covenant Fund Trust, as well as working clearly alongside a plethora of civilian organizations. Have you always felt prepared to transition, sometimes often at quite short notice, into these different environments, leading new and diverse teams or indeed being in a position of leading without authority and how have you adapted as a leader yeah that's a really really good question uh, um and no i don't think i i i'm going to speak to myself for myself but i think i'd be surprised if many senior leaders felt completely ready to assume their next role if, if that's going to be a different or a more senior one uh, and i and i've said to people in the past i think if you're not slightly nervous there's probably something wrong and i do think we all get impo imposter syndrome we all get to that position and we think, well, you know, am I, am I the right person to do this? Have I, have I, you know, can I actually do it? Uh, and that, and that, but that self-doubt can be really, can be really um, persuasive and really um, corrosive if, if, you don't, if you don't deal with it, I think. I mean, I suppose I've been really fortunate in that my cat badge, my organization, which was originally the Royal Corps Transport, now the Royal Logistic Corps, there's always been a very inclusive and diverse uh, whole force organization. We've always worked very closely with industry uh, and I've had exposure to that and different ways of thinking from early in my career. And people that don't take you too seriously as well and don't let you believe you're impressed, I think that, that's important. I think, I think it's really important as well if you're going to deal with those situations 
for, for leaders to be confident in knowing that they can say that they don't have all the answers. You know, I think to say, look, I don't know is the right thing to do. I think there's a lot of pressure on people to say, well, I know. And I, more often than not, I say, well, I don't know. What, what do you think? And I think if you can do that, you, you can genuinely listen and, and harness the power of your team to, to get the best solutions, particularly if you're, you're dealing with the kind of, you know, cross-functional organizations that I have in, in the sort of logistics world. I mean, you know, you talk about 104 Logistic Brigade. I'd never really worked with reserves. I, I, I trained reserves when I was an instructor at Sanders, but I'd never really worked with them. And then suddenly I had a fully integrated brigade that had some of the Army's, you know, specialist capabilities. You know, at that time, port and maritime, rail, movements, uh, you know, and much of that was vested in our reserves, rightly, because they were the experts. Um, and I just found myself throwing myself on the mercy of, of the experts there and asking them, you know how they how they did it, which did come in one of the one of the best pieces of military tourism I've ever done. When, when I visited two seven five railway troop on their exercise down in down in Kent, uh, and I got up on the footplate of a steam engine, he said, "Well, sir, it's your train set," which was which was pretty cool. You, you mentioned you mentioned cadets, uh, and I think you know really worth a big plug here. So, so in my last role as GSC Regional Commander, I was responsible for over sixty thousand under eighteen community cadets and, and combined cadets. Uh, and and they're amazing adult volunteers of which we've got twenty thousand of. Something I'd never I'd never been involved with. I wasn't a cadet at school, uh, and then suddenly I had responsibilities. This amazing organisation, and it was one of those ones where I just had to throw myself on the mercy of those adult volunteers and those experts who who guided me and allowed me, I think, to to do my best to enable them. And it's their organisation to do the absolute best by those those young people who you know get so much benefit for being in that organization that instills values and standards positive role models and, and puts a lot of them into to an environment that challenges them and makes them better people so it's a very long answer to your question Langley. Oh, that's fantastic it's, it's great to hear such positive contribution by the uh, uh, by the cadet community i never realized they were that big eighty thousand. that's that's phenomenal adults and and uh, and youngsters yeah and that's um, just the army that's just the army pit obviously you've got you've got uh, maritime cadets you've got um, you've got air cadets as well so turning to a subject that i think many leaders out there will be focused on concerned about now and that's what we in the army call the loneliness of command and there'll be leaders to say in the current crisis facing unprecedented challenges unprecedented pressure particularly those in a position of authority and people who are being held to account for the decisions they're making so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your experiences of the loneliness of command and how, as leaders, we might cope. Yeah, and I think this is a, this is a great question. And some of, some of the work that I know Central Army leadership have done with Public Health England and National Health Service, trying to support them and this brought this, brought this really into, into focus. Um, I really recognise it, the whole loneliness of command thing, but, but I think I've been really fortunate. I, I've always had really great people around me who I felt that I could trust and, and confide in personally. And I've always been pretty open, I think, as a leader and as an individual with my own sort of personal doubts and fears, I suppose. And I think that the only real time that, that I've, I've felt this was when I was commanding officer of my regiment. When you are at that regimental level, really at sort of top of a, of a pyramid, and some of those, those really quite tough decisions you have to make are probably yours and yours alone. Uh, and it is sort of where the buck stops, I, I, I suppose. Um, I'd have to say I've always been amazingly well supported by my family and particularly my wife. I've always I've always felt that, that that stable relationship, you know, and for me it's a wife for others, it might it might be friends and colleagues outside outside of, of the military. I would also say, as I said before, I think as a leader, it's okay to say you don't know the answer. 
And I think, you know, people have, and I've, I learned that when I was a young um, officer as a brand new second lieutenant, you know, looking after capabilities, I didn't, I didn't really understand fully. Uh, and I've always found if you say you don't know and you ask for advice, pe people are very much ready to do it. And they, they do it because you ask it in the right way, in a spirit that seeks to support you, not to undermine you. Um, but I suppose, you know, far bit for me to offer massive amounts of advice. But, but I think it is very, very rare that anyone in an organization wants the leader, leader to fail. Uh, and I think if you ask for that advice, people would be willing to do it. Uh, and I think for, for all leaders out there, it is absolutely okay to say you don't know or that you're struggling a bit with you know, a difficult decision and that breaking it down and, and asking others to help you with it, understand that it still might well be your decision to make at the end and that's where the buck stops. But, but at the point of getting that decision, you don't have to be isolated or lonely going into it. It's really interesting. You're bringing up quite a few themes there that have been echoed in previous podcasts in terms of humility, although not necessarily your words, but sort of vulnerability with strength but also the importance of families as well. And I think that's something we don't necessarily give enough credit to uh, in the military, just how critical our families are uh, to provide that, that foundation for, for us to enable us to do our job um, and who takes so much of the burden. Yeah. Um, I wonder if I could now um, broaden out to some of your uh, uh, wider experience. And in addition to your core duties, you're also the forces Muslim champion. So what does that role entail? So I was asked if I would be prepared to take that role on when I, when I took over my last job commanding regional command. And um, when it was explained to me, I was, I was very keen to do it. So along with the other champions across defence and in, in the single services, I provide senior support and advocacy for one of our forces communities. And in my, in my case, that's the, the Armed Forces um, Muslim Association. And what, what challenges and opportunities does the, the army offer the Muslim community? Well, it's interesting, the, the army, and I wasn't an expert coming into to any of this, but, but the army's values and standards almost exactly mirror those of the Muslim faith. Uh, and, I, and I guess as an inclusive organization, we want to be able to welcome people of all faiths, beliefs and of none. Um, but we are underrepresented uh, in most of those faith groups within our organization. And I think part of what I'm, I'm keen to do during my time uh, in this role is just make sure that there's no barriers, be those perceived or, or real, that, that make being a member of the, the forces, particularly the army, incompatible with faith. And, and you know, we rightly want to properly reflect the society that we, we protect. So some of this is about education awareness uh, and supporting conversations as we go in. I'm also very conscious that, you know, a lot of people in these faith communities maybe view the military through the prism of the campaigns we've had in Iraq and Afghanistan. And because the military is still relatively small, they might not have met service personnel and their faith leaders might not. So I sit on the, the Home Office Anti-Muslim Hatred Working Group, and I'm really keen within that, that the army seeks to, to very firmly refute any association that, that um, extremists have, that the army in any way reflects their views, which, which clearly we don't. But perhaps that, that if we are more equivocal about making that absolutely clear with people, then, then I think that would be beneficial. And I think on a personal level, I think thankfully we've moved well beyond the issues of availability of food, beards, prayer and observation of faith, which, which characterized the initial um, issues around faith. Uh, and, I, and I, you know, on, on, in a personal way, I, I'm still humbled when it comes to Ramadan, how, how our serving personnel, Muslim personnel, uh, reaffirm their faith by, by fasting, uh, you know, for, you know for, for during daylight hours, and how they actually do that uh, and continue to function uh, is not something that I could do, and it's, it just impresses me every year. 
I echo that and having served alongside uh, uh, Muslim partners and allies on operations uh, during Ramadan, um, it's phenomenal uh, resilience and dedication, very admirable. And I, and, and I guess it's important out to faith and religion more broadly, and we're, we've got a number of faith leaders coming up on our podcast series, but what role does religion play in today's army? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting question, isn't it? And, you know, most, I think most soldiers would probably not consider themselves to be religious in the traditional sense. But, but most of them have very strong beliefs and faith, um, but they just not, might not be faith in traditional religious things. I, I think we also work in, in very difficult at times, very frightening environments. And I think that the support that's provided to us by our spiritual and our pastoral leaders across the many faiths we have remain really important. I also think there's a truism that there, there are no atheists in a foxhole. And when the bullets are flying, it's surprising how many people are keen to be with a padre or, or just offer a prayer when there's a moment. And I think, you know, at its, its heart, the army is a really diverse organization. It's got room for people with very strong faith and people with no faith and everywhere in between that. Um, and, and that spectrum remains important to us as it does in any other areas of inclusivity. Thanks, General. Switching fire now, you're an avid sports fan, also chairman of the Army Sports Board and an accomplished canoeist. And uh, for our listeners, General Caps was a member of the British Marathon Kayak uh, racing team for almost a decade, I believe. And you have the official or unofficial record for the Divisors of Westminster. Sadly, Canadians. it's the unofficial record because it was cancelled that year, Langley. So. <laughs> but having, having uh, endured just one of those events, um, I, I share your pain, but clearly nowhere near your level of uh, expertise. Um, why is sport so important to the Army? I mean, sport... sport uh, is absolutely the heart of all we do. It, it creates a winning culture. It builds teamwork. It builds a spree de corps. It improves mental and physical robustness and fitness. It nurtures pride uh, and humility uh, because whenever you have a competition, there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. And I think it's great for leaders as well. It encourages thinking, clarity under pressure and positivity. And beyond that, particularly as we see, you know, increasing um, pressures on our young people, stress and the like, I, I know I'm not the only one that finds it an amazing way of seeking release because we do a lot of this stuff that can be incredibly stressful, but it's not physically releasing. And that buildup of stress and adrenaline and all the rest of it, there is nothing better than, than doing some form of competitive or just training activity towards sport that puts a structure in it and just gives you that release. I've also found, and I joined, I joined the Army canoe team as a young second lieutenant, that it's a great way of getting to know your soldiers. And I joined as a young second lieutenant, slightly nervous, thinking that, that, that I might not be welcomed or, or there might be a lot of, you know, rib pulling and all the rest of it. And of course, there was a lot of that, but it, but it, it has been just an amazingly inclusive environment that, that has the, the greatest people. And I know that's true, whatever you do. And I, and I was the fat kid at school that always got picked last at football. So I've always done sports that involve working harder and brute force and ignorance rather than hand-to-eye coordination. But whatever you do, all of those teams across the army, and it's amazingly supported by the, by the, the Army Sport Control Board, c can only be good. And I, and I do hope, and I know for all of those out there that share my love of sport, be the individual and team, that we're hoping that once we do get beyond COVID, we can return to... Um, you know, the full programme of sport, both at home and overseas, that, that we seek to support. General, thanks so much. We've covered a huge amount there in a, in, at a relatively short amount of time. Operations, national resilience, cross-sector leadership, sports and, and religion. But before, um, before we let you go, I've got a few quick-fire questions for you, if I may. Uh, firstly, who's the best leader you've ever worked with? 
Oh, so this is really difficult. I, I'm going to say the one that had the greatest effect on me at the time, and that was my CO, uh, John Wallace. He was my CO when I was a regimental ops officer, and we went to Bosnia on the third grapple tour, which was difficult. He then went on to be Deputy Chief of Staff 1 Div and, and um, Commander 104 Brigade, both jobs that I did. And I think he was the one at that relatively early stage in my career had a seminal effect on me. Most inspirational non-military leader? Nelson Mandela. Uh, my wife is originally South Africans. So we spend a lot of time there. Inspirational servant leadership, ability to generally forgive, uh, transform, uh, and always led by example. He's a hugely popular man for that question, and rightly so. Most enjoyable leadership position? Again, really, really difficult. I have loved and been privileged to do all of them, but it probably has to be commanding officer seven regiment. I asked my wife about this the other day, and she said, that's the only one I've seen you cry when you left. That's a good indication. Uh, what's your biggest leadership challenge in the future? Oh, I think living up to 200 years of history as the Commandant of Sanders is pretty well up there. And probably doing justice to the honour of being given the title of Director Leadership for the British Army. Feels like quite a big gig, doesn't it? No pressure. And finally, sir, what would you tell a young Second Lieutenant Caps about leadership with, your, with hindsight? So this is a great question. So, so second Lieutenant Caps would have not been interested in what some old coffin dodger like me had to say. So I think the first part of that is uh, to stop talking and for once listen to some advice. And I think secondly, but possibly most important, I think it'd be to confirm that being yourself and the authenticity that flows from that honesty, the openness and the humility of it are every bit as important as you slightly suspect they are at the time. General, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for joining the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Langley. Appreciate it. As expected, a very open, honest and characteristically humble reflection from General Duncan on his wealth of leadership experience. I thought it was very valuable that the General spoke about our profession, the profession of arms at the beginning of our conversation there, because it is the unique nature of that profession that really sets the context of why leadership is so important to us. It is a profession that demands a great deal of our people who are required to sign a contract of unlimited liability, which, as he said, necessitates individuals to subordinate their own considerations to that of the collective. He also talked about how our organisation and our purpose is fundamentally about people. For us in the land environment, we operate alongside, amongst and on the battlefield against people. And it's this that establishes the core of British Army leadership today. It's about service and putting others before yourself. It's values-based and it's leadership by example. I thought General Duncan's perspective on organisational agility was very interesting and will, will of course resonate across many other sectors where he talks about building a culture of leadership which is all-inclusive, brings everyone to the table, develops shared understanding and enables everyone to contribute to the plan, yet having that hierarchy and clear lines of authority to drive the plan forward. He talked about allowing individuals to voice their opinion, to empower, to back your people, and to let them know you trust them. And once you've got this culture, this then allows you to pivot as the context develops, adjust the plan accordingly, but still maintain the focus on the overall purpose and intent. We certainly covered a lot of other ground, and I thought the general opened the door on a number of really interesting areas of the, of the army. He talked about our journey of continuous professional development, how we've come a long way in the last five years and more to professionalize our leadership, that there's more we can do perhaps to focus on our individuals, our individual leaders, particularly our non-commissioned officers. 
It talks about the breadth of our national resilience operations that the Army and indeed wider defence are often called upon to support, acting as the nation's insurance policy. But as he was right to, to point out, always in support of other authorities, never in the lead. And these operations are very much whole force, regular reserve and civil service. And finally, the Army's continuous drive to ensure that we reflect the society we protect, as specific to General Duncan's role as Forces Muslim Champion, ensure we represent people of all faiths and none. And of course, he was right to point out there are no atheists in a foxhole. If you like what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast, visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership, and follow us on our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.